0: Often I'm interviewing other company builders that I admire, but it's always energizing to be interviewed as well. I participated in a fireside chat with Golden Seeds, an early stage investment firm focused on women-led businesses. I'm republishing our conversation here. We covered a range of topics, including what are the seven fundamental attributes of companies with high growth efficiency and talent efficiency? What are the four dimensions on which we can coach our teams and grow ourselves? And what have been the four stages in the evolution of customer success? This was a fun conversation. You can listen to the audio version or else read the lightly edited transcript. Enjoy.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming this afternoon and welcome to this Today's Trend Talk. We have, as always with us, uh, Golden Seeds members. We have Golden Seeds CEOs and quite a few guests. So we welcome all of you to today's session. Today's session is about a topic that is on our minds with every single golden Seas company, and that is charting the course to customer success. Our guest is Allison Pickens. She's founder and general partner of the New Normal Fund, which invests in AI and SaaS companies. In fact, just a few minutes ago, she told us that so far in three years of managing this fund, uh, it has invested in 25% of the Forbes rising stars list. So we consider that a good sign. Uh, She's also a former COO of Gainsight. Allison was brought to us by Lynn Bain and Lisa Favero. Thank you both. I see you're both on this call today. Thank you for introducing uh, Allison to us. Allison has particular experience with SaaS platforms and the large topic of building recurring revenue. Plus, she has much to say about go-to-market strategies, AI, and more. So we'll hopefully get to all of that. She's been a board member and an advisor to many companies. Today, Allison will be in conversation with Carolyn Ficka, who is known to most of you. But just in case, I will also introduce Carolyn here. She has been an important part of Golden Seeds for over 11 years. Uh, she's the leader of the consumer sector group at Golden Seeds and is involved with literally every consumer deals that comes through Golden Seeds. Uh, she also created and delivers our Knowledge Institute class on investing in consumer businesses. So if you haven't taken that class yet, watch for it. It's terrific. Carolyn is an experienced board member and board observer. Uh, She's mentored many companies in her years at Golden Seed. She was previously an investment banker for 18 years uh, with both KPMG and Prudential Securities. So today, Allison and Carolyn will be in conversation for the first 30 or 40 minutes. Then we'll take your questions. So please jot your questions into the chat box anytime. And as I said earlier, we'll hopefully, we'll get to all of them. So I, Carolyn, over to you. Appreciate it. Allison, I will echo Loretta's thank you for joining us today.
2: Looking forward to a far reaching conversation and to our member, other members, uh, questions, um, which again, right into the chat room. So we're going to start hard on customer success, big topic for the day. Let's go from the beginning, beginning with your early days at BCG on to Bain Capital through your pioneering work at Gainsight. How have you seen the concept of customer success evolve, especially in light of the shift from perpetual software licenses to subscription-based and consumption models? And how do you envision the trajectory over the next decade of this important topic? And you might start with just kind of definition of terms. You know, how do you look at customer success?
0: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you all so much for having me. Just to reciprocate the thank you, I've been an admirer of Golden Seeds for a long time. So excited to join you all today. To your question, I, I think there are four different stages of customer success that I've noticed over the years. And, and one of those is, I call it a, a future stage. You know, at the beginning, customer success, I, I'd say this is the term probably dates to like the late 90s. Customer success was really about customer support back in the perpetual license world. So in that environment, revenue was made up front. It was all about TCV, total contract value of the deals that you were signing. And, you know, the reality of that model is that because you were making money up front, you really wouldn't have to care too much about customers after the initial sale. Customer support in that case was mainly offered as a service. So, you know, B2B companies would charge for customer support, you know, often as kind of like a fraction of TCV, you know, professional services as well. And it was considered to be, you know, to the customer's benefit to offer that, but not necessarily to the company's benefit, unless they were making, you know, healthy margin on that service. And so, you know, customer support, I think by nature was reactive to what the customer wanted. It was you know, mainly focused on inbound tickets and checking boxes on issues that came up. And, you know, the best thing that could probably come out of a customer support ticket is that you could sell more professional services as a high margin because you would realize the customer had a problem and you'd use that as a way to kind of sell a service. What happened, as you noted, with the shift to recurring revenue is that you were no longer making your revenue upfront. Certainly there was that component, but a lot of the revenue over the lifetime of a customer would come after the initial sale. It would come through the renewal of that contract and through the expansion of that contract. And so it meant that you actually had to care about customers after they signed that initial deal with you. Now, I think at the beginning of the SaaS model, people saw these recurring revenue contracts as kind of like an annuity in the sense that it was considered to be the default that the customer would renew. There would just be this automatic recurring stream over time. But as many SaaS companies soon realized, as their customers churn, that renewal was not a guarantee. And actually, if anything, there's you know sort of a law of customer success that the natural tendency of customers is to churn. It's almost like a law of gravity. Like they they will churn unless something is done about it. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that you could do about it, which we can talk about. But, you know, a big thing that needed to be done was to have people who would be dedicated to Working with customers, guiding them through an, a journey of onboarding onto your product, getting to an initial value milestone, driving the ROI from your product that they hoped that they would achieve when they initially bought your software, guiding them through the renewal, and then you know finding new ways to add value, which would result in a high net dollar retention rate, which is you know really the recurring revenue metric that you know SaaS companies would would care about. Stage three of customer success, I think we've seen. Probably started emerging, I call it five years ago initially, when the product-led growth model really started taking off. And there was, you know, consumption-based pricing that became a lot more popular as well. So these two things often go hand in hand, but they had sort of slightly different implications. On the product led growth side, what it meant was that customer success management as a function was not the only way to get customers to value. And actually, Product like growth companies said your product should really lead, not in just in terms of acquiring new customers, but in terms of getting customers to value. Ideally, customers don't have to talk to anybody in order to get value from your product. They should just self-onboard. They should, you know, learn about best practices through the product itself. And we could talk about that, you know, like later in this conversation about like what might be some mechanisms for that. And so really product teams are responsible for net dollar retention, as much as, if not more than, customer success teams. And then with consumption based pricing, which often was tied to the product like growth model, it meant that even if you have a renewal in your contract, the primary way that you make money from your customers over time is is not through the renewal event. It's actually through getting your customers to consume more of your product over time. So um, we're making money as customers complete certain actions in the product. And, you know, the consumption based metric might be literally transactions that are happening through the software. It might be, you know, the the number of something that's done, like invoices sent or email sent, depending on, you know, what the product is. And therefore, it's really in the interest of the company to make sure that customers are using the product. So it meant that securing, you know, additional revenue over time wasn't just about, you know, working with stakeholders to get the renewal signed. It was, you know, the shift in focus became a lot more about really the usage and the value that that customers are getting. And then finally stage 4 I consider to be, you know, the, the beginning of that is really right now where AI is taking off, you know, large language models have gotten so good that these agents can actually speak to customers sometimes even more effectively than humans can. Um, there've been all sorts of studies that have been done that show that, you know, depending on the industry, agents can outperform the average, you know, human in terms of both technical expertise empathy even, and other types of, you know, problem solving. So I think we still are learning what stage four exactly looks like. But you can imagine it in the long run being that at least some of your customers can be served by an an AI CSM, an AI customer success manager. And in the meantime, actually a large portion of what customer success managers do can be automated through those CSMs using AI to make themselves more productive. So certainly the role is changing, even if it's not going away at, at this very moment.
2: Absolutely. A fantastic story, And we absolutely will be getting back to churn, value from your product and AI, all of that in the session. So I, I will make sure of that. What I'd love to shift to, though, is kind of the drivers of the need for stronger customer relationship, kind of what's impacting that. And specifically, given the prominence of social media Increasing emphasis on online feedback, whether they want it or not, how do you believe these factors are shaping the vendor-customer relationship? And in what ways has that immediacy of digital feedback and digital communication elevated expectations for customer service?
0: Digital interaction certainly has been a primary driver of vendors realizing that they need to respond to customers much more immediately and effectively. Social media, as you mentioned, is an important vehicle for customers to talk to companies, sometimes not even directly to them, but more just kind of venting to the universe about the issues that they might have and their relationship with their vendors. You know, Twitter, I think, is, or X, has proven to be like, you know, great venting ground. So in a nutshell, social media holds vendors more accountable than they used to be. Positive word of mouth for social media can really make your company, but, you know, one bad Post can take down your company also. It's meant that vendors need to really mitigate the risk associated with bad customer experiences. Also with Slack, Slack started out as a tool for people to collaborate internally within their companies. But increasingly, best-in-class tech companies are using Slack to communicate directly with their customers. They might have a Slack channel for each enterprise customer relationship that they have. And it's helpful you know, to do that because they can have a whole group of people at the vendor, it might be the CSM, their boss, a support person, professional service person, anyone who interacts with an account can, you know, be there seeing, you know, the full visibility of correspondence with the client. And then, you know, the client can similarly include all their stakeholders on their end and get, you know, near immediate answers to questions. So uh, with Slack, again, you know, I think there's uh, Slack has enabled um, an expectation of greater immediacy than there used to be. I think at the same time some of these methods of communicating with customers online have become outdated. For example, I think we've all had painful experiences trying to interact with sort of old school rules-based chatbots, right? That like as a as a consumer if you've interacted with like your bank or Dropbox or you name it like through chatbot, you've probably been frustrated and similarly these voice bots when you you know, call a customer helpline that take you through this decision tree are very painful to communicate with. And I, you know, I think this is particularly difficult for a lot of companies now, not B2B ones so much as like B2C ones that are short staff. They just like don't have the people to be, you know, the sort of fallback for these channels of communication. If, if the chat bot or the voice bot isn't working, there's often not someone who can like talk to you at CVS. It's like you're struggling. So we've had this heightened expectation for immediate responses. But then I think with sort of the the talent shortage, we've been letting customers, especially like consumers down a lot, which has all, you know, that combination, I think has just opened the gateway for AI to make an even bigger impact on customer experiences. You know, one example actually of like a sort of new age chatbot would be in the debt collection space. There's actually a company that I'm, that I just invested in called Saris AI, which is very early stage companies. If you looked at that, there's probably wouldn't see any, anything really about it, but they're building agents for debt collection. It's a space where 75% of the role of the debt collection agent can be automated. Often these debt collection agents are corresponding with debtors through text or email. And a lot of some of what they're doing is rules based. A lot of it is kind of navigating the conversation to get a sense of that person's likelihood to pay off their debt and figuring out, you know, how to optimize the negotiation to the firm's benefit. And um, so, so actually, like, you know, these new ways of interacting with customers in an immediate way, I think, can benefit the vendor more, even more now than they have in the past.
2: I can only think of the word representative coming to mind as you're forced through those decision trees when you make a phone call and keep getting yeah. <laughs> Just keep saying representative. We'll get back to that question you, you mentioned before about value from your products. And we'd love for you to chat a little about how are companies delivering tangible value to their clients? And specifically by way, by way of example, uses of dashboards, embedded best use cases, what can companies do to really deliver best in class?
0: I'll share a few examples. Certainly it varies by company, but, you know, we broadly categorize companies into ones that are following a product-led approach, like I described before, and then those that are more enterprise-oriented. On the product-led side, which is a large percentage, I think, of especially AI companies that are coming to market now, you know, certainly like in-app walkthroughs are a known way to onboard a new user. If you're not familiar with that term, it's basically like you log into the product for the first time and there's sort of a window that pops up and you click next as you learn where to go in the product and it, it kind of walks you through like do this, then do this, then do this. And, you know, you're sort of activated. There's actually now a next generation of walkthroughs and the one I'm excited about in which I invested in is a company called Atlas, which uh, has created a crawler that allows you to understand in real time all the different app- states of your application. It's kind of like creating a Google map of your product and a Google map that automatically updates as you release new features in your product, unlike the old school walkthroughs, which were sort of static and you had to manually change them over time. But, you know, with Atlas now, you can release on a very frequent cadence new features and then customers can quickly get up to speed on them, you know, through the kind of like dynamic walkthroughs that you can create. It's also really common nowadays to use templates to greet new users so that they know, okay, here's an example of how another user like you has solved this particular problem. A company called Airtable, which folks might be familiar with, is I think probably considered best in class in using sort of templates for different use cases and ensures that there's no blank canvas when someone logs into a product. It helps it get, get to value pretty quickly. product companies also use email outreach from virtual CSMs. So if they notice you getting stuck in the product, they might send you an email and it says, you know, click here if you'd like to set up time with us. Sales assist teams have also become common among product-led growth companies that are also trying to upgrade individual paid users to corporate-level contracts. These sales assist teams are sort of like individual or user-level CSMs, customer success managers, where they'll reach out to individual free or paid users who they notice being power users of the product. And then they'll notice, okay, if there are five power users at a particular enterprise account that are really they're using the product well they're starting to collaborate let me see if I can leverage that and turn it into a corporate level contract that you know a salesperson on you know who's working with me can then can then close on the enterprise side in terms of how do you help enterprise customers get value i've noticed great companies creating maturity curves where they educate the client on how to change the way that they do some practice through the use of your software. So we did this a lot at Gainsight where we'd say, look, you know, in customers, and by the way, you know, Gainsight was a customer success product, which is like why I know a lot about this space. We would be helping other SaaS companies trying to build their customer success organizations. And we would say, look, you know, you're starting out in stage zero where you're very reactive to your customers. There are these three additional stages that we're going to take you through over the course of our relationship. Stage one is about this, stage two is about this, stage three is about this. And we're going to map the best practices in each of those three stages to features in our product that you should be using in order to become mature in that particular stage. And then we'll graduate you to the next stage. It's a very prescriptive way of helping your customer. Instead of waiting for your customer to say, Hey, I'm struggling, or hey, I'm not using your product. We say, look, like we're almost going to act like a a light touch consulting firm and help you, you know, get value in this methodical way. Right.
2: It sounds like in sort of in product education, helping the whole customer experience is what this is all about. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and I think even with enterprise customers, certainly much can be done in product. I think sometimes software people, you know, with their tendency to want to automate everything. They can sometimes underestimate the value of having humans actually guide customers through change. One of the companies that I work with that has actually been, you know, super successful to date, primarily through product led approach is now really deep in building up their enterprise business. And you know, the founder came to me and he was like, I finally understand now why you were telling me to have uh, to be on a texting basis with right. the top executives that are top clients. Because even though that felt like a silly manual thing to do. It's a huge lever for us to deepen relationships, ensure the renewal and, you know, expand the size of, of these accounts. So, so, you know, the in-product stuff is really important, but still there's some like old-fashioned relationship building that tends to make a big difference, particularly in, in, again, changing behaviors. Like it can be hard for products to change people's behaviors. They're used to working in a certain way. Sometimes we just need a person to like guide us through it or, or in the future, maybe a persuasive AI.
2: Shift a little now to in the product led growth area of sort of onboarding. How are businesses managing customer expectations given kind of rampant use of free trials, freemium models, product led growth? And how have customer success teams that have to deal with this adjusted to this new emphasis on customer driven product roadmaps?
0: All of these changes have been that product teams and customer success teams have had to work very closely together to ensure that customers are getting value and that, as you said, their expectations are met. I've noticed a certain set of best practices for those two teams to work well together. One is that they have the same metrics that they're using to analyze customer health. I remember really early at Gainsight, I came to an executive team meeting and I was saying, you know, here's a definition of a customer health score that we have been working on on my team. And then the product leader looked at it and, he, and we were clearly not on the same page. And he he said, well, actually, we've been using this other definition, which, you know, looked really different. And there was a moment where we thought, well, maybe it could make sense for us to have like two different metrics. Certainly, I, I don't want to impose too much on you and, you know, you don't want to impose on me. But like, that's the kind of conversation. It, it, that's a Misalignment that needs to be fixed. Like we need to have a North Star metric for what counts as great adoption and what counts as a healthy customer. Otherwise we might not build the right things to serve customer needs. I think it, you know, in the same vein, it's important that both teams be looking at the same customer feedback. There are a lot of great tools out there nowadays for, and particularly with the advent of, you know, better LLMs, large language models, a lot of great tools out there for analyzing written customer feedback quantitative customer feedback and getting summaries of those things. I think both teams should be looking at the same stuff. I think it's important for product teams to involve customer success early on when they're planning product roadmaps. You know, it's one thing to come to, for the product team to say, oh, we, you know, designed this whole feature and FYR, we're going to be releasing it in two weeks. Customer success team, you better get ready because like you're probably going to get a lot of questions about this from your customers. Another thing to say, We're envisioning solving this particular problem that our clients have. Customer success team, why don't you join our design brainstorm session or design review session so that you you can get input based on what you've noticed those customers experiencing with this particular problem. I've noticed a lot of benefit to having subject matter experts within customer success teams where a particular CSM can read their hand to say, I'm going to be the one to just gather lots of feedback on this particular feature and become kind of a thought leader on how that might evolve over time. And then they can be the one to join the product roadmap meetings for that you know particular feature. I've noticed a ton of benefit to having engineers rotate through a customer support position. Some companies, for example, say, we're hiring a new engineer, your first two weeks on the job are going to be fielding customer support tickets. And It starts them off with like developing a level of empathy for customers that they can then, you know, bring into their engineering role. And I saw another company, very successful company recently. They've got like nine people and are at a couple million in ARR, which annual recurring revenue, which is amazing. They don't have any customer support people. All their engineers just feel tickets as they come in. And like the minute they get a ticket, they solve it, but then they build something to prevent that ticket from recurring. And the final thing I think is useful is recognizing that customer success folks and product managers bring different skill sets and personalities to solving problems that customers have. Both are important. Customer success folks, I, I found to be very good at situational thinking. It's our customer has this particular problem. Let's help them think through how to solve it for their particular need. Whereas prop people are often very good at systems thinking. You know, we, we, we notice this problem across a broad set of people, and let's define the problem with a level of breadth. Not every problem is unique. Not every client is unique. Actually, there are patterns. And let's build the product to account for those patterns. Are
2: there actually metrics that should be used by companies, no matter who's bringing them forth, that really helps gauge customer health? Are there standards, just a list that every company should be holding on to?
0: There are certain financial metrics that every company should be tracking. Net dollar retention is the most obvious one. Net dollar retention, for those who don't know, basically means, you know, you take customers and the revenue that they're paying you at the start of the year. For that same set of customers, how much revenue are they paying you at the end of the year? And so, you know, over the course of that time, some customers might have insured, they might have stopped paying you altogether. And then some might be using your product in a more robust way, or they might have Bought additional products or licenses from you. And that expands the size of their contract. So net dollar retention is an important metric. Churn like dollar churn rates, or you know, the inverse of that is gross retention rate. Very important, I think, for everyone to track. And that's important to track separately from net dollar retention because if customers are turning, even if they are, even if other customers are spending more money with you on balance, it nets out, it still matters that customers are turning. That's important information. You might learn that customer is not a fit for my business and we shouldn't sell to this market anymore. You might learn important feedback on your product or your method of selling to them. There's just important information, I think, inherent in that churn. So you need to track it separately. And also the more customers that churn, the fewer customers you have to upsell. So it reduces your installed base that you can then expand. And that's a financial problem. It also costs more money to replace a customer that has left than to renew them typically. So it's important for your, you know, your sales and marketing efficiency that you renew customers. So, you know, but I think there are a lot of other metrics that are unique to a particular business. I do recommend, as I sort of noted earlier, having a North Star adoption metric for your company. It might be the the metric that's used in your consumption-based pricing model if you have one, like the number of value-oriented actions that a company is completing, as a user is completing in your product. PQL is also a common operational metric. It's product-qualified lead. And typically, you know, I I talked earlier about a scenario where you have five power users at a particular account. That might qualify that account to be a PQL. It's a lead for a sales-led corporate level contract that you could be selling. You're trying to convert self-serve organic usage into a sales-led, much larger contract that you build with the executive, probably at that account.
2: Thank you for that. As we think about just kind of holistically business strategies and practices, and as you think about the audience on this call right now, approaching and chatting with young companies, are there rituals and practices that embody everything you've been talking about? that are recommended for these young companies and that we should be looking to see whether they're tackling. So specifically, which practices are most important as younger companies undertake new product introductions, expand their channels of distribution, uh, even make an acquisition?
0: There are a few that I found helpful. The foundational thing is for founders to define very clearly what their values are and explain in detail what they mean referred to them very frequently. You know, I really believe that it's important to be intentional about this. Also, a lot of founders make mistakes when they define their values. The biggest mistake typically is they are too vague or the values just look like, oh, yeah, who? Yeah, everyone likes that. Be nice to people. Sure. Like (laughs) hard to argue with that. I think the best values are ones that reasonable people could disagree on. As an example, you know, a value might be we are transparent with each other. Uh, the reality is not everyone likes transparency. There are certain people who, you know, may not want to know everything bad that's happening at the company. They might get really de- demoralized or they may not want direct feedback. So actually, like you could imagine a sort of different type of value, which might be we are kind to each other. And it might be that kindness is sometimes at odds with transparency. So. You know, again, I think it's important to like take a stand on what kind of company you are going to be, and that can help guide many decisions that you have over time. OKRs are certainly an important type of practice. Um, OKR is standing for Objective and Key Result. OKR, and essentially the goal setting process that's become the widely used methodology now. I think you can have overkill with OKRs when you're a very small company, but what I like about the methodology is that and in, in using it from from the beginning of your company is that it makes everyone realize that what they are doing matters for a bigger goal. Everyone needs to understand how the way that they're spending their time is mapped to a broader mission and strategy for your company. And it, it just gets everyone on the same page from the beginning. And, and that kind of it creates a lot of agility, which is so important when you're a small company. I also like reviewing job descriptions with key leaders every six months. Often we talk about job descriptions when we're recruiting someone, but we don't revisit them later. And um, it's important, I think, to revisit them because if you've stayed at a a fast-growing startup for six months, that company has inevitably changed dramatically over that period. And that means that your role has also changed. Probably the expectations for your role have changed pretty dramatically. So those JDs need to be updated and there needs to be an alignment between CEO and exec about or or leader about what is their role at the company. And the final thing I'll recommend in terms of rituals is using exec coaches or leadership coaches. I, you know, I find it just so important that leaders be self-reflective, aware of what they're strong at, aware of where they need to improve. And, um, when people have a coach who's sort of in their camp advocating for their professional growth, folks are much more likely to not only succeed themselves, but also be more dedicated to the professional development of their team members as well. And make sure that, you know, everyone is growing with the company, again, as the company changes its expectations for people.
2: That's hugely helpful. And as we think about revenue growth, you had a wonderful blog post that actually spoke to Seven fundamental attributes of a company. And we did promise we would get back to churn. So here's the big chance. Um, You might just kind of walk us through some on a highlight basis, those seven fundamental attributes and hit on churn.
0: Seven attributes. And I can maybe describe a little bit like why I put these together. I, I wrote a post about something that I termed talent efficiency. I think it was about a year and a half ago. And, you know, what I, it was a revelation that I had had when. I had looked at two extremely high-performing companies that I was involved with. One of them is DBT Labs, where I'm on the board, and the other was a company that I had invested in. And the company I had invested in was, at the time, the fastest-growing SaaS company ever to $40 million in ARR. And I, you know, I was looking at like these two companies and realized that in both cases, the founding team didn't seem to work that hard. And that was as someone who's like worked in private equity investing that's <laughs> always been like a very driven person that that also believes that hard work is kind of inherently an important attribute in life uh, or important thing to do in life. This was kind of shocking, and um both of them both founders were like dedicated fathers and you know would leave work at pm. and I was trying to figure out like you know how is this even possible and and what I thought about was how. In each of these cases, these companies, again, small sample size, but that I realized as I got more examples that I think this applies more generally, if the fundamentals are right at your company, you may not need to work as hard because things are easy. And the things that make it easy for you are the following, like for like seven attributes, in my experience. One is a large immediately addressable market, which by the way, is different from, oh, there are 7,000 accounts that we could sell to. It's like, There are people in the market to buy your product right now who are like raising your hand and you can just like onboard them. You could have a waitlist right now of people like knocking down your door, trying to buy your product. There's a strong like inbound component to this. It's not just they're like willing to have a conversation with you. They're like, they're more than ready. They would have bought it yesterday. The second thing is like strong product market fit. So it's not just that the market is ready to have a solution, ready to have a solution. It's that you know, your solution for that great market is also great. And then, you know, third, strong positioning where people easily understand how your product fits into their current tech stack. We like to be disruptive, I think, as startups, but the reality is like you have to work your way into the world. And, um, you know, you've got to have a place where you fit. So you build, pro- you know, partnerships, product integrations that kind of reinforce your... Positioning. Fourth, limited competition. You don't want to waste your time like fighting small battles. Five, talented team. I think is, you know, fun. The talent of the team is a fundamental attribute. These are people who can do the same amount of work in less time and find better solutions. Six, strong alignment across your team. I think alignment is a fundamental attribute. It means that, as we talked about earlier, everyone is aligned. Synergies among team members are high. You're able to focus your effort on. Very high value things, and seven thing is a strong founder. And strong founders end up checking all the boxes on you know one uh, fundamentals one through six. Like they find you know a large immediately addressable market. They build a product that fits really well. They position themselves well. You know they find a space where there's not a lot of competition. They think through this and align and recruit the right team members to go after that problem. So those are you know seven things that I think about a lot when I'm looking at investing in companies as well.
2: Absolutely. Excellent. I'm going to take a little bit of a leap now because I don't want to miss this topic. So we're just going to jump on into it after that great list of seven items and talk specifically about, you mentioned before, ChatGPT. And I'd love to take it a little bit further and ask you to just comment on how you feel that tool is going to add value in today's business. Can you provide a specific example as it relates to excellent customer service?
0: ChatGPT, as I think you all know, is, um you know, consumer facing product that was initially launched as a way of educating the world about the power of large language models. GPT, more recently, GPT-4 and GPT-4 Turbo, you know, that have that OpenAI, the company has, you know, released into the market. And companies are now have been spending, you know, the last year, I guess, since it was launched trying to figure out how to incorporate large language models into how they do business, not just, you know, how people can use Chat GPT for like fun purposes like faking the writing of an essay for school. And um, I've noticed probably three categories of ways that large language models can be useful for customer success. One is they make customer success managers individually a lot more productive through, for example, summarizing meetings and coming up with action items coming out of a meeting. There are tons of meeting summarizers on the market and actually CSM spent a lot of their time summarizing a client meeting and then like sending takeaways and action items to customers or to other internal team members who are supporting an account. You can use large language models to brainstorm ways to save an account. I've used, for example, pi.ai. It's pi.ai before. You can actually just, and you could use chat with Gbt for this as well. I think you could write in like here, some attributes of this customer situation helped me think through how to see this account. LLMs have been used to synthesize research about a particular company's priorities. So scanning, you know, public filings, job descriptions even, because job descriptions often mention corporate priorities, tools that are being used. So you, you can learn a lot from public stuff about like what a company cares about and therefore how to sell to them or, you know, how to influence that account as a customer success manager, auto-generating decks for PowerPoints for meetings. Uh, There's a company called Matic, which I also invest in, and they help take your company data and then embed it into a PowerPoint that's auto-generated that you can then share with the client as part of a quarterly business review, which might be just a quarterly, you know, touch base with the client about the value that they're getting, particularly like how how their users are using the product. Second category, you know, automating the role of CSM and support, not just making CSMs more productive. We've talked about support chat, bots getting a lot better with AI and helping with how-to questions that users have. You can also automatically email your long tail of users to upsell them, for example, and design like the talking points in those emails. There's a company called Wizia which does that. And there are a few others as well. I think the third category we said. that LLMs have changed customer success recently. You can use, uh, it is about like improving the product. So you can use chatbots, for example, to gather feedback from customers about their experience and what features they'd like to see that can inform the roadmap. I mentioned the company that I invested in called Atlas, which helps create in-app walkthroughs, but also they help create, maintain documentation. About your product, which is, you know, currently an extremely manual effort that's mostly shouldered by product managers and engineers who could be spending their time doing really different things. And, and then the final thing is an automatically configuring software based on prompts. So for those who have been exposed to salesforce.com, you might know that there's a huge industry dedicated to configuring Salesforce to companies needs and then maintaining it and adjusting it over time. Companies spend, I think, more on those services overall than they do on software licenses for Salesforce.com. Companies like Superframe and Swantide are auto-configuring Salesforce.com and other related applications, which means that those products can be massively improved in terms of the time to value that they offer customers. And with another, I won't say pivot because this is all one big conversation. But I would love to turn our attention
2: to your book, To the Customer Success Economy. And it contains so many different insights, so many important insights. What would you highlight to this audience are the most important ones, anecdotally or otherwise, that entrepreneurs that we speak with should really
0: learn from? That's funny. The book is basically a synthesis of my and our CEO, who I co-wrote it with. And our CEO is like six years of learning about customer success, from incubating best practices internally seeing what works out in the community and, and, you know, compiling that together in excruciating detail. I think a lot of people have found the best practices in that book to be useful. But actually, I think the most important takeaway from it is actually how the power of first principles thinking can help you learn about something from scratch. Like we knew very little about customer success when we set out to build this company. And we learned a lot by just thinking from scratch about, the problem of how do you drive strong net dollar attention? And I think that's important because even today, when I talk to founders who are looking to hire a great head of customer success, their sort of default instinct is, oh, let me go hire someone who's done it before. But actually I think, and especially given how quickly technology is evolving nowadays and therefore how quickly go-to-market motions and customer-facing motions need to evolve nowadays, it's useful to hire generalists in customer success leadership roles Who can think from first principles about how to design a customer success team, given, you know, how quickly their company is inevitably going to change and how quickly the ecosystem around them is, is changing. So I, you know, I, I maintain that often generalists are the best customer success leaders. And again, thinking about things from first principles can often get you the right answer,
2: which takes us perfectly to the, if you would briefly describe what you call the growth mindset, which anybody with any background needs to house. And it's four dimensions.
0: Growth mindset is one of my most important values personally. Actually, as a personal note, when my husband and I were trying to decide whether we should get married, we decided to spend like half a day at a vineyard in Napa and we put together like our family values. And partly we wanted to make sure that we knew what those would be. And so we like came up with a bunch of family values and we engraved them into a wooden board that now sits in our kitchen and that we like educate our our children on. Um you can tell we're both MBAs. So, you know, and one of them is growth mindset. And I I just think in life and also in startups, it's just so important to recognize that you were never perfect. Perfection is also not really possible, but a little bit of humility and a little bit of insecurity actually can, you know, help make sure that you're continuing to improve, continuing to evolve. The the four-dimensional framework that you mentioned is something that um, actually my leadership coach I've been working with for, I don't know, seven years at this point or something, put together or together with one of his mentors. And um, I found it to be one of the most like impactful frameworks for thinking about how to grow oneself. The four dimensions that he identifies the leadership competencies are one, awareness, which is about, you know, are you self-aware and aware of your environment? Do you like process information well, essentially? You know, second key component is, or key like uh, competency is connection. Like, are you able to have that EQ to connect deeply with other people? Three is confidence. And, you know, that's, and, and actually it's more like inspiration. Do you have the sort of gravitas and do you kind of glow in the way that helps other people be drawn to you and like want to follow you? And then the fourth competency is essentially the warrior, you know, strength competency, which is about just like hurdling toward that goal. And I found when I'm coaching folks who work with me, speaking to these four dimensions is helpful for me understanding where they get their energy, where they are strong. Um, and it's not necessarily that you have to fix it when one of these competencies is low for them. It might mean more that you make sure that for the next executive that you hire in your team, they can complement that executive in that area. But I think it's important, you know, in in any given team to have great energy across those four different competencies because, you know, all of them are important. And if we know where we're getting our energy, it helps us to grow and evolve.
2: And with that absolutely wonderful way to think to the future, think about ourselves, think about people that are part of a management team, uh, having those that kind of growth mindset I'm going to just say thank you. Thank you for all this one, these wonderful insights. What a pleasure and a privilege to have you with us today. We're so glad you're able to join us. We'll say thank you so much. And we've all learned so much today. And I'm sure the audience shares in saying thank you.
1: Thank you, Allison and Carolyn. Um, I just want to say, say, first of all, your expertise goes way beyond AI and SaaS. So thank you for all of those insights. And we do have time for a couple of questions. So let's see what we've got here. John Wilson, you have a question and feel free to take yourself off mute.
3: Thanks, Loretta, And Allison, that was great. Enjoyed your topics and presentation today. It was really well-reasoned and well-organized, compelling even. So thank you. I guess yeah. the way I think about customer success, and I'm, I'm just interested, my question is going to you kind of is, if I explain to you kind of how I think about it, do you see people that are doing it this way or or well, and, and maybe your uh, Google Maps organization, maybe that's Atlas. Maybe this is kind of what they do. But I think about customer s- success. We we staff people typically in those roles with SaaS. We should have pretty good telematics about how our products are being used at an actual individual user level, uh, and then we have the ability to suggest maybe through your maturity model the features and capabilities that can. Help them adopt or be more efficient or more effective. Maybe there's an element of AI in there as well. I see those three things. Kind, of, I look at customer success kind of in those three things that need to kind of come together. Um, I think my experience is most companies look at you know telematics. Sharing too much of that can be creepy to the actual customer or, or user. And so, without necessarily grading me on an A to an F on how I describe that. Is there somebody or are we thinking about how to make the telematics and the insights? We didn't really talk about that a lot today. We have this incredible wealth of information on how our products are being consumed and used. And taking a client logically through whether it's that maturity model or using it for engineering to give us the heat maps on where people are having challenges. Is there a, kind of a collective thought in the way I describe those three things uh, about people or organizations or solutions that are helping do things like
0: that. Those are three important components of, you know, effective customer success strategy. I think specifically to your question about telematics, like can that be at odds with our desire to connect with our customer because they find it creepy that they're being tracked. I actually think that was true when we started out at Gainsight. But I think at this point in the business community, I think everyone expects actually that they are going to be tracked and if they sense that you are not tracking them deeply, they are annoyed at you. <laughs> uh, speaking of like the desire for like kind of immediate response, I think many companies believe that if a vendor is not tracking the percentage of their licensed users that are using it, if they're not tracking whether they've completed certain milestones in onboarding, they think that the vendor is just not on their game. So that's been I think an important evolution now. it increases expectation for the vendor you're also, I think you were asking then about, you know, how did these three things like relate to each other? I do think that especially, you know, usage data can be used to understand where is a customer in the maturity curve. I think that's what you were implying. And, you know, for each of those three stages that I mentioned in the gain site example, right, how we tracked our clients through the stages, there were certain behaviors that we would expect to see in the usage data. And so, yes, I, anyway, I agree with what
1: you said. Okay. Barbara Rejo is saying, I always thought that an important leadership competency was subject matter expertise and knowledge. Do you think that's important? That's a great
0: question. And like arguably could be sort of counter to my point about like first principles thinking. I think that it depends and and like to give some sort of boundaries around that. I do think founders need to be subject matter experts on the markets that they are serving. I think that one of the things that I look for in founders that I invest in is that they're authentic to their market, which is important, I think, for developing a unique insight into how to solve a problem. And that unique insight can propel them into building something that doesn't have many competitors and that is contrarian in the best way. So I think that's important. I also think that in certain cases for customer success managers specifically, it's helpful for them to have subject matter expertise in the feel in the sort of field of clients that they are supporting. For example, I was talking to a legal tech company yesterday that is thinking of hiring lawyers as customer success managers because they have you know so much credibility with the client lawyers that they are speaking with and trying to influence. So I do think that subject matter expertise can be important. I generally find though that founders overweight functional expertise when they are hiring and that often leads to big mistakes like hiring a sales leader from a big company just because they have 20 years of experience doing it and it's a hot company. But it's very different building in a tiny company in an un, relatively unknown market where the world is shifting beneath your feet because OpenAI just came out with a bunch of announcements at Dev Day. <laughs> so so I, I do think that like first principle thinking is probably the most important thing to anchor to when you're hiring.
1: It's great. Thank you. And our last comment is from El Tong. Thank you very much for your advice about marriage. That's a good comment. I would just hope everyone will join us in thanking both Allison and Carolyn for a great conversation. Thank you everyone for coming and happy holidays.